Thank you. Thank you so much. Go ahead and be seated, if you would, please. God bless you today. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures to all generations. Amen, church? I love that passage that says, I was glad, very glad, when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, we're here at the house of the Lord, and can't be any better than that, being in God's presence. And what a wonderful presence we have here with us today. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And that's really what I want to talk about today is entering the holiest. The writer here of the book of Hebrews is referring back to Old Testament tabernacle when they built that tabernacle and there was the holy place and then the most holy place. The most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat, the two angels, the cherubim, and the manifest presence of God. High priest would enter once a year into that most holy place on the Day of Atonement. Only one man once a year could enter that most holy place. And here in the New Testament, the Bible says that we can boldly enter into that most holy place. That's what I want to talk about today, entering into the most holy place. Intimacy with God, the holy of holies. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's what we want to do. We want to draw near to God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Oh, that's my passage of Scripture. We're going to be looking at that Old Testament tabernacle. Not really learning so much about that, but learning how to enter as believers into the holiest, the holy place, the most holy place in our relationship with the Lord. You know, they're saying, I just saw this today, that uh, over 120 colleges and universities have been touched by what we call the Asbury Revival. And some of you have asked me my opinion on it. Of course, I haven't been there, but I've watched videos and seen interviews and read uh, reports on it, and I just think it's wonderful what's happening. I have this down as a quote. Whenever people joyfully remain in the Lord's presence, repenting, worshiping, reading Scripture, praying, etc., clearly God is reviving His people. How can that not be good? Psalm 86 verse 5 says, Will you not revive us again that your, that your people may rejoice in you? You know, a few weeks ago I talked about uh, uh, in one of my messages how revival in the history of America usually begins with young people. And uh, that seems to be what is taking place. So thanks be to God for that. But it's not limited to young people, people my age, the next generation, the generation after that, we can all enter in. The Bible says, let us draw near, right? Let us love the Lord. Let us repent of leaving our first love. Let us put God first. Let us break open our alabaster box of devotion and pour it out on Jesus. Let us enter his holy throne room and bow our hearts. God wants us to enter the holiest the most holy place, where his presence is, where his altar is, where his throne is. This is the pursuit. This is the goal. This is the destination of every sincere Christian to draw near, to enter in, 
to worship, to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the worthiness of God. The Bible says we enter by the blood of Jesus. It starts right there. Verse 19, we enter by the blood of Jesus. Back then, it was the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. The day of atonement, much blood was shed. There was death. One man, once a year, could enter into that most holy place. But we have a new and living way through Jesus Christ, through his precious blood. I think that's awesome, don't you? In verse 22, it says, with a true heart, we are to draw near or to enter in. That means a heart that is sincere, a heart that is without hypocrisy, a heart that's not playing games, that's not pretending. We come to church on a Sunday morning and we pretend to be all in, and then once we leave, we're not all in. We're half-hearted in our pursuit or lethargic in our spirit, but we draw near with a true heart. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you want to draw near Do you want an intimate personal relationship with him? Do you want to be able to enter into a place where you're at his throne, as it were, enraptured by his love, caught up in his presence? That's the promise. The Bible says not only with a true heart and by the blood of Jesus, but with, in verse 22, full assurance of faith. That means boldly, confidently, and uh, I love that. You know, so many times the Bible says to, to lift up, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes. And uh, the scripture says that the Lord is the glory and the lifter of our head. You know, when somebody is ashamed, full of shame, full of guilt, feeling unworthy, not feeling like they belong, what do they do? Well, they hang their head. They hang their head. The Bible says that we are to enter the holiest or we are to draw near with full assurance of faith or as it says in verse 19, boldly, boldly, confidently. That's not, that doesn't mean pridefully or arrogantly or cocky as it were. Of course I belong here because of who I am. No, we enter boldly with full assurance of faith through the blood of Jesus by his worth. He has robed us with his righteousness. He has washed our sins away. We have every right or the authority to enter in, and we can do so not with our head hanging, but realizing that we can lift our eyes and look up, look full in his wonderful face. Somebody say amen to that. So we draw near through the blood of Jesus with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith. And as the Bible says there in verse 22, a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. That means no guilt, no shame. No guilt, no shame. But I've done shameful things. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the Bible says a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. That means our conscience has been washed in the blood of Jesus. Our guilt and shame have been removed, fully forgiven, fully accepted. We know that in our hearts. No guilt, no shame. We're accepted in the beloved, sons of God, daughters of God. We belong there. That's what that means. And our bodies washed in pure water. To have the idea there of... Daily 
forgiveness. I've, I've said this so many times that as Christians, we need to have that repentant heart, that repentant spirit, that lifestyle of repentance. Repentance is just not for those that are coming to Christ for the first time. It is for them, for we must believe and repent, right? But it's also for us as Christians, that lifestyle of repentance, that daily washing, that First John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all need daily cleansing. Just as the disciples needed their feet washed every single day, we also need our hearts washed every single day from the daily sins that we commit because we are living in a fallen place. We're part of a fallen race. We know that we have these things in our lives, and we come before God with that lifestyle of repentance. Oh, God, forgive me. Wash me whiter than snow. Cleanse my sins. Oh, God. And with that heart, with that spirit, we enter into the holiest with boldness and with confidence because of the great blood of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is where God met with his people. The Ark of the Covenant is not merely the throne where God manifested himself in his holiness, but it was also the throne of his relationship with his people. That's what I want to talk about today, the relationship with his people. God wanted to bring men into communion with him, Man's fellowship with God was symbolized to the sacrifices, offerings, and tabernacle furnishings. So I want to take us on a quick journey, because worship went a little long. I want to take us on a quick journey from the door into the most holy place. This Old Testament tabernacle were symbols or shadows of something much greater. It all speaks of Jesus and how through him we can draw near and enter that most holy place and find that place at his throne, at that altar of grace or mercy, and worship him from the depth of our soul, from the depth of our being. It starts with the door. If we got that picture of the tabernacle there in the wilderness, it's interesting. The tabernacle was placed in the wilderness the wilderness wanderings, there's the picture of it. As you see, it's surrounded by a fence. Why is that? Because not everybody can enter in. And if you notice there, the purple right there, that was the door into the courts of the Lord. You have the brazen altar where the offerings were made. Then you have the laver where the priests would wash themselves. Then they go through that first entrance into the holy place, and then there's another veil into the most holy place. But God pits that tabernacle in the wilderness. This world is a wilderness, and we have a place where we can meet with God down here through Jesus Christ. He doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. He dwells in our hearts. We can know him by faith in him. And God pitched that tabernacle, and it was in the midst of the 12 tribes. It wasn't on the outskirts. They didn't have to journey to get there. God pitched it in the midst. He wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He wants to dwell on the throne room of your heart. He wants to be in the midst of your family. He wants to be our God and walk among us in the midst of our church in the midst of this fellowship. Somebody say amen to that. But the door, as you see, was that purple door. Jesus is the door. He tells us this in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. He's the entrance into the kingdom of God. The entrance into the family of God, into salvation, is through Jesus. Now, if you notice, there's only one door. That's the exclusive claims of Jesus. 
one-way Jesus. I got saved in the 70s, and we always had those little bumper stickers with a, a fist and a finger pointing up like that. Not the middle finger, but this finger pointing up like that, and it would say, one-way Jesus. And of course, that's John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's two to three million Jews there in the wilderness, and there's one door... And that one door, they all had to go through that one door, straight and narrow is the way, the Bible says. There's not many doors, it's not a broad, wide door, just believe whatever you want, just make sure you believe, that's how you get to heaven. Well, that's the gospel of the culture. Just believe whatever you want. It's all okay. The Bible says the door is straight. The door is narrow. And of course, the Christian faith believes that Jesus is the way. Not only is he the way, we believe that Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. So we got the door and we enter in right there. Did you know that two million Jews had to fit through that one narrow door? Now all that want to be saved have to fit through one narrow door, and that door has a name, it's Jesus. They enter in, they go right to that brazen altar. Altar was made of wood, a place of fire, a place of blood. It was overlaid with brass, which is a symbol of the judgment of God. Did you know that that altar was overlaid with the brass taken from Korah's rebellion there in the wilderness? Their censers were melted down and overlaid with brass. That means that your rebellion needs to be under the judgment of God, and blood needs to be shed to cover our rebellion. The Scripture says, not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all. Back in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice continually, constantly, constantly, continually. Blood was being shed. Animals were being killed. Fire was there, and uh, that was continual. But we know that Jesus died once for all. Amen? They moved from the brazen altar to the laver, and that laver was overlaid with bronze from the mirrors of the Israelite women. They built that tabernacle at the foot of Mount Sinai. They came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, took a two-month journey from the Red Sea down to Mount Sinai. They were out Mount Sinai for approximately one year. That's when God gave the Ten Commandments to Charlton Heston as Moses and uh, also gave all the commandments, the law. But also that, he gave them the pattern for the tabernacle. It's there that they asked for the Israelites to give donations. And so they gave donations, materials, so they could build that tabernacle. And the Israeli women, they gave their brass mirrors. Their bra- they didn't have mirrors like we do. They were made out of brass, shiny mirrors. They all gave it. And the scripture says that that labor was overlaid with the brass mirrors from the Israelite women. Why is that? Because it was to reflect. The priests, when they would go to that labor, before they began the priestly duties, they would wash themselves. They'd look down into that mirrored labor, and what could they do? They could see where they were dirty. And of course, that labor speaks about our daily forgiveness, does it not? 
that we must go to the mirror of the word of the Lord. We need to be washed by the water of the word. The word of God is like a reflection. It shows us what manner of person we are. We see who we really are by looking at ourselves through the word. We see that we're sinners. We see areas that we've sinned. We apply the blood of Jesus, the washing of the word. God cleanses us. This is daily forgiveness. The brazen altar speaks about once for all forgiveness, our justification. This is our daily forgiveness, the labor, our sanctification, this process of being cleansed every single day. We know that we're saved. We also know that we're being saved. And we also know one day we shall be saved. And this labor speaks about that daily process of cleansing that each of us need. We go from the labor to the what we call the holy place. If we could put up that picture of the holy place as I said, I'm just moving through this as quick as I can here. There's the holy place. On the right, we have the table of showbread. On the left, we have the candlestick. And then right before the, the veil there that goes into the most holy place, we have the altar of incense. That table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread each and every day, one bread for each tribe was set out one time a week. And at the end of that week, the priest would eat that showbread. And of course, Jesus is the bread from heaven. It's a holy place in there. They had to go through the curtain to get to that holy place. And these three stops speak really of our spiritual disciplines and our daily devotions to the Lord. Jesus is the bread from heaven that we eat there's enough bread for all his people. And we know that as the word of God is our necessary food. We also have the candlestick. Did you know the candlestick, according to the scriptures, had to have its light shining forward? And the candlestick was Jesus being the light of the world. It was fed by oil, the oil of the Holy Spirit. Spirit-led, spirit-guided, that light always shining forward. And, of course, the altar of incense that was burned twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. The fire for that altar of incense was taken from the brazen altar out front where the animals were sacrificed. That fire was begun by God himself as fire from heaven fell from heaven to light that first fire when they dedicated that tabernacle. And they had to keep that fire burning. You ever hear that? Keep the fire burning. It was taken from this Old Testament tabernacle. That fire fell from heaven. It consumed the very first sacrifice. And it was the priestly duty to always have that fire burning because it was a heavenly fire. And they take the coals from off that fire and take it into the altar of incense and burn incense twice a day. And there was a certain concoction that they would put on there. They would burn as an incense, and it was a sweet fragrance, a sweet aroma. And I want you to know that that represents the prayers of his people. And it's a sweet aroma in the presence of God. But we can only bring our prayers to God and have it be acceptable before God if the fire comes from the cross. We come through that cross and makes our prayers beautiful in his sight. Morning and evening prayers. Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of, uh, of Aaron, were killed by the Lord because they uh, offered strange fire. What they did was they brought fire from the camp to burn at the altar of incense and God smote them. Because they did not get the fire that fell from heaven from the brazen altar. They got it from the camp. And I want you to know we can offer all kinds of fire, all kinds of passions. 
We need to make sure that when we worship the Lord, it's the passion that comes from the Holy Spirit, the passion that comes from a true, sincere, genuine heart. Somebody say amen to that. Well, that takes it to the veil, the veil. And I want you to know, when you, when you read the word, the table of showbread, when you pray, the altar of incense, when the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing you and leading you and speaking to you, that's a very holy place. That's a very holy place. I have my devotions every single morning, reading the word and praying and worshiping and, and sensing the Holy Spirit. That's a holy place. But it's not the most holy place. And that's where I want to get us to, is that most holy place. That's the end of their journey there in the tabernacle, to go from the door to the brazen altar to the laver to the curtain, that most holy place with the table of showbread and, and the altar of incense and the candlestick. Now, there's another veil there that that high priest would go through on the Day of Atonement, one man, one time a year, into that most holy place. And into that most holy place, we had the Ark of the Covenant, the angels or the two cherubim, what we call the mercy seat. And in the midst of all that was the manifest presence of God. What that looked like? Well, most people believed it was like a cloud with a torch on the inside. I once had a dream when I was in Egypt, sitting there in the Hotel Hilton on the Nile River, right there in Egypt. God gave me this dream, and I believe that in this dream, he showed me what the Shekinah presence of God looked like there in the wilderness as he led the people of God, and what it looked like there in the most holy place. My wife and I were in chapel service, and I'm up there preaching, and the, the pastor, Ayet, uh, who is Assembly of God pastor, he's interpreting for me, and uh, behind us entered the presence of God. And the presence of God was like a pillar of cloud. And inside that pillar of cloud was like a torch, or fire was inside that cloud. And it came in from behind of us, and Pastor Ayette looked at me, and his eyes were as big as saucers. He says, it is the Lord. And that place was filled with Egyptian pastors, and they all fell face down before the Lord. And that pillar a fire and cloud went up and down every single row in my dream and supernaturally touched the needs of everybody there. And I found myself up on the platform like this, and I was face down on the platform before the Lord, but the Lord had not passed me by. He had gone out into the congregation, and he was going out the main doors, and I said, Lord, don't pass me by. And that cloud and fire just stopped and then turned and started moving towards me. And I was filled with the fear of God in my dream, just filled with the fear of God. And as the cloud just approached, I cried out. I said, I love you, Lord. And the Lord spoke to me in my dream, and I love you too. Your latter years will be greater than your former woke up. Just like that. I woke my wife up. I said, I just had a dream from God. She thought I was joking. 
And I started describing this dream and all she could tell by my description of this dream and you know, the tenor of my voice that this had really happened, that dream just stuck with me. But in my dream, it was a, a cloud. Inside that cloud was like a torch. And so that takes us into the most holy place, if we could see that most holy place. Up there on the screen, there we have the Ark of the Covenant. And then they got the cherubim right there. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid that would lift up. There's your lid. It would lift up, and it was hollow on the inside. They had three objects on the inside. But the top of that covering of the ark is called the mercy seat, and it was sprinkled with blood on the Day of Atonement. So you have mercy and blood. There's a cherubim that's a reflection of what is in heaven with the cherubim and the seraphim around the throne of God crying, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. Some say Lucifer was the anointed cherub that led the worship to the holiness of God. And inside that ark were three things. There was a jar of manna, speaking of God's provision. There were the two tablets of stone that God put the laws on, speaking about or representing the provision of God's law. And also there was Aaron's rod that had budded, speaking about God's provision of authority, of leadership. And it's interesting that that was put inside the ark and covered with mercy. Why is that? Because we resist and rebel against God's provision of his word, God's provision of his law, and God's provision of authority. We disobey his commandments. We reject his ultimate authority in Jesus Christ. We resist his, his provision, which is God himself, for God provided the Lamb of God. And that's placed in the ark and covered with mercy because we need that when we enter into the throne room of God because we come, we come by his grace. Notice it's a, it's a place of mercy. It's called the mercy seat. And the Bible says that when you enter the most holy place, we approach and draw near to a throne of grace. A throne of grace. So I want us to get in there. I, I have a, a description of what it's like, you see. I realize I'm going quickly, quickly through this because of the time. How do you know you've entered the most holy place? When your heart is completely devoted to Jesus. When your praise turns to heartfelt worship, praises, testimony songs, he has made me glad, he has made me glad, I will rejoice for he has made me. That's, that's a praise song. Psalm 100 says, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. I will enter his courts with praise. But the most holy place is a place not of just testimony, what the Lord has done, it's a place of Worship, where you're centered not on what he's done for you, but centered on the nature of God, the character of God, the greatness of God, the supremacy of God, the holiness of God. Hmm. When you no longer make requests to God, but worship at his feet, you know you're in your most holy place. Because in the holy place, that's where the altar of incense was. That represents your prayers. When you enter into the most holy place, there is nothing for you to do there. 
You know, you're not reading your Bible. You're not saying your prayers. You're, you're not singing praise, praise songs as to what the Lord's done for you. When you enter the most holy place, you're there in the immediate presence of God. And that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, it's a seat, a mercy seat. What do you do with a seat? You sit on it. You see, that was the throne of God. And what do you do at the throne of God? You worship him. You adore him. You leave all your requests behind. And you're just in awe of the greatness of God. You pour out your love to him. You receive from him. What do you do at the throne of the almighty God? You kneel in his presence. You bow your heart in worship. When you are no longer aware of yourself but are captivated by Jesus, you know you've entered the most holy place. When your heart is filled with the greatness of a holy God. The scripture says in Psalm 111 verse 9, holy and awesome is his name. God is holy. Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him and in reality is a summation of all his other attributes. You know, you talk about the love of God, it's the sum of all his, in other words, it's a holy love or a pure love. Not just love, but a holy love. That's what that means. The word holiness refers to his separateness. He's separate from sin. His otherness, the fact that he is unlike any other being, it indicates his complete and infinite perfection. Holiness is the attribute. Holiness is the attribute of God that binds all the others together. Properly understood, it will revolutionize the quality of our worship. God is holy, so he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you or me. If he can't sin against you, then he is absolutely trustworthy. Think about that. If God is holy, he can't sin. And if God can't sin, then he can't sin against us. Anybody ever hear, well, you just need to learn to forgive God. God is holy. If God is holy, God can't sin. And if God can't sin, he can't sin against us. And if he can't sin against us, that makes him absolutely trustworthy. We can trust him because he cannot lie and he cannot sin. He is faithful. Faithful to his name. The scripture says, there is none holy as the Lord. It's a place of worship. It's a place of fellowship, this most holy place. In conclusion, in Psalm 96, verse 9, it says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. 
The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And the only way we can be holy is if we come to Jesus and by faith receive his grace, his salvation, his forgiveness. Oh, to be robed in his righteousness, to take on his garment of praise, to have our sins washed whiter than snow. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him. That talks about the fear of the Lord. We fear God because there is no God like our God. Our God is an awesome God. Jesus is so loving and kind, but he's also holy and righteous. What now? What to do with this message? We need to enter into that holiest, drawing near to God, that place. Is there a sin you need to confess today? Do you need to draw near? Do you need to return and renew your heart to God? Do you need personal revival? Do you need to bow and worship? Those are good questions. I want to move from the courts of the Lord of happiness and joy and praise because we enter his gates and courts with praise and thanksgiving. Obviously, I want to go to that holy place of the word and prayer and the spirit, praying and seeking the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord and reading his word and how important that is. That's a holy place. But I also want to move from there through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent from top to bottom. Heaven rent that veil. And now that way is wide open. We don't have to stand afar, stand at a distance. We can draw near, as near and as close as you want. Where you are just enraptured by his love. Full of worship for the greatness of God. Filled with adoration, wonder, and amazement as you're before his throne, as he is seated on a throne of mercy. Oh, how we need that. And the holy presence of God. People couldn't even see in to see what was taking place. And I want you to know that when you go here, it's called a secret place. As Moses learned, a cleft in the rock, a secret place. You and God, before his throne, his absolute majesty and holiness. What do you need to do to draw near today? Do you have a sin to confess? Do you need to put God first? Do you need to say, revive us, O Lord. Revive me.